You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 196, The Rhode Island Campaign. By late summer 1778, the British forces in North America were mostly restricted to their major garrisons around New York City and Quebec. The next largest force in North America was in and around Newport, Rhode Island. Back in 1776, when General Howe had ordered his second-in-command, General Clinton, to capture Newport, Clinton had been upset because it removed him from the primary campaign in New Jersey against Washington's retreating Continentals. After capturing Aquidneck Island, Clinton went back to London to resign his commission. The king refused to accept his resignation and sent him back to New York City. The British garrison in Newport then came under the command of General Richard Prescott. The Continentals managed to kidnap the general, as I discussed in episode 147, and the British sent General Robert Piggott to take his command in Rhode Island. Because the soldiers were needed elsewhere, Rhode Island never really got enough soldiers to go on the offensive in New England. Instead, they fortified Aquidneck Island and kept the waters around it as a port for the Navy. Occasionally, the Americans in the surrounding areas would run minor raids against the island, but this was really just harassment. Other than the mission to kidnap General Prescott, there was not really a whole lot they could do. Actually retaking Aquidneck Island without being able to control the waters around the island was just not possible. In the spring of 1778, General Piggott ordered a few British raids against the mainland, which I described back in episode 185. But again, those were day raids, designed as a quick search-and-destroy mission to be over before the enemy could respond in force. These minor raids aside, the occupation was pretty much a standoff for nearly two years, with the British in control of Aquidneck Island and the Patriots controlling the surrounding mainland. General Piggott commanded between two and 3,000 British regulars and Hessians, along with a handful of Loyalist militia thrown in. In July, just before the French fleet reached New York, General Clinton, now commander of forces in North America and operating out of New York, sent an additional 2,000 regulars to Newport under the command of General Richard Prescott. Although Prescott was returning to his old command, the more senior General Piggott remained in overall command at Newport. A short time later, Clinton dispatched another two regiments of Hessians, all of these reinforcements traveled by sea and arrived via troop transports. Rounding out Piggott's command were Major General Francis Smith and Hessian General Friedrich Wilhelm von Losberg. With all these reinforcements, General Piggott had close to 6,000 soldiers under his command in defense of Aquidneck Island. And the British Navy also still had at least a dozen smaller warships in the waters around Aquidneck 
in order to protect against any American assault on the island from the mainland. The Americans had been frustrated with this British outpost in New England, but the Continental Navy was no match for the British, thus leading to this nearly two-year standoff. Once the French Navy, under Admiral d'Estaing, was able to threaten the British Navy, Washington finally saw a chance to remove the British from Newport. A year earlier, Washington had sent General Joseph Spencer of Connecticut to challenge the British presence in Rhode Island. Spencer had called up New England militia for an attack on Aquidneck Island, but then canceled the attack at the last minute, fearing that he had lost the element of surprise. The Continental Congress had censored Spencer for his failure to attack, although a court of inquiry later exonerated the general, he resigned his commission and left the army as a result of the controversy. Washington then sent General John Sullivan with similar orders. Sullivan had spent several months trying to build up an assault force, but had really accomplished little other than try to parry against the British raids on the American mainland. Washington, seeing the opportunity to use the French fleet to resolve this deadlock, sent his aide, Alexander Hamilton, to meet with Admiral d'Estaing at Sandy Hook at the southern end of New York Harbor. Hamilton, who spoke fluent French, advised d'Estaing of Washington's plan to capture Newport with the French Navy's assistance. The French admiral then set sail for Rhode Island. At the same time, Washington sent Sullivan about 2,500 continental reinforcements, as well as the assistance of Generals Lafayette and Green. Nathaniel Green was, of course, from Rhode Island. Even though he was serving as quartermaster of the army at this time, Washington hoped his presence in the military command would help inspire local militia to turn out. The bulk of the Continental Army remained at White Plains, New York, just north of New York City, and perhaps a week's march from Newport. Washington was not going to break his siege of British-occupied New York City. His position north of the city also prevented Clinton from trying to march any British reinforcements overland to Rhode Island. Washington had called on Sullivan to raise 5,000 New England militia to supplement his army, but to keep the involvement of the French fleet a secret. Washington had hoped to keep the French fleet's arrival a secret from the British. Sullivan had difficulty getting the militia to turn out in great numbers until the actual arrival of the French fleet on July 29th. Bowied by the presence of the fleet, New England militia began making their way to the Continental Camp. Congress also ordered three Continental Navy ships in Boston to work with D'Estaing's fleet. Two of the ships could not muster enough sailors to even leave port. All the sailors, of course, were serving aboard privateers. A third ship, the 32-gun Warren, did manage to leave port. However, the ship's captain, John Burroughs Hopkins, much like his father, the now-disgraced Commodore Isaac Hopkins, opted to disobey orders and set out in search of a merchant fleet sailing from Ireland to New York City. Washington's aide, Colonel John Lawrence, had been attached to General Sullivan for the campaign. Lawrence received Sullivan's instructions, then waited for the French fleet. When it arrived at Point Judith at the mouth of Narragansett Bay, Lawrence, who also spoke French fluently, met with Admiral d'Estaing. The meeting did not go particularly well. 
Lawrence informed Estang that Sullivan only had about 1,600 soldiers ready to go. He was still awaiting the arrival of the Continental reinforcements under Lafayette and Green. He was also still awaiting the arrival of most of the New England militia. Destang also learned that the British had destroyed most of the Continental boats in their May raids. Sullivan wanted to wait for the arrival of more reinforcements and the manufacture of more boats before he could begin his assault. The French fleet should guard the entrance to Narragansett Bay and await further instructions. The French were not happy about having to wait. It simply gave the British time to improve their defenses. There was also the danger that the British could send a relief fleet before they could take out the defenders at Aquidneck Island. Also, the French sailors and soldiers aboard the ships had not been ashore since sailing from France. The men were suffering from scurvy and lack of fresh water. On top of all that, Destang was perturbed that General Sullivan was issuing orders to him like he was some sort of subordinate officer. The British did, in fact, take advantage of the delay. The French fleet was much larger than the small British contingent of ships around Newport. Admiral Howe had issued orders to make sure British ships were not captured. The British Navy unloaded and scuttled the ships in Narragansett Bay, where they would serve as obstacles to an advance by the French fleet. The crews mounted the cannons in batteries around various islands in Narragansett Bay, prepared to contest any French advance. The day after his arrival, Destang sent two of his ships into Narragansett to the west side of Connecticut Island, which sat to the west of Aquidneck Island. The British defenders on Connecticut spiked their cannons, blew up their powder magazine, and retreated back to Aquidneck. The following day, the French landed a small party and raised a French flag on Connecticut. A couple of days later, they placed their own cannons on the island to cover the entrance to Newport Harbor. They did not land on the island in force, though, fearing a British counterattack would lead to the soldiers being trapped on the island. French ships also attacked several British warships that were still unloading onto Aquidneck. The British abandoned their ships and set them on fire, their primary goal keeping the ships from falling into the hands of the French. On August 1st, General Sullivan came aboard the Languedoc to meet personally with Admiral Destang. The leaders agreed that once they were ready, the Continentals would land on Aquidneck from their bases on the mainland east of the island. The French would land on the west coast at the same time. The French also landed some of their sick to be cared for on the mainland, turned over several hundred prisoners from prize ships to be held as American prisoners, and sent to Boston nine prize ships that they had captured since leaving France. On August 3rd, two small British ships took advantage of fog and sailed past the French fleet into Newport. They carried word from Admiral Howe that he was assembling a relief fleet. With that, General Piggott ordered several remaining ships to put their cannons back on board in order to protect Aquidneck from any attack before the British relief fleet arrived. The French, seeing these ships back in position, came after them. After trying to sail away from the French, the British commanders ordered their ships set on fire and destroyed them. General Piggott became convinced that the French were planning to assault Newport at any moment. The British commander attempted to enlist more local loyalists, even slaves, to assist with the town's defense. 
Most locals, however, did not like British chances and did not want to be captured on the losing side of the battle. Pigott also virtually abandoned the northern part of Aquidneck Island, concentrating his forces and supplies in the area immediately around Newport on the south of the island. As all this was happening, the Americans under Sullivan were trying to build up their forces. In response to the call for militia, Massachusetts had called up about 3,000 soldiers. Of these, about 1,000 of them were already in the field and just had their terms extended. Another 2,000 were drafted and sent marching. Connecticut only sent a mere 500 soldiers, leaving another 4,000 militia in the state to protect against any British invasion from Long Island. New Hampshire neglected to send any militia, despite New Hampshire General Sullivan being in command. Rhode Island called about 3,000 militia, but only for service of 15 days. Officials were concerned about getting men home in time for the harvest. In addition to the militia and the 2,500 Continentals still making their way from White Plains, Sullivan also had command of several regiments of state regulars, These included the 1st and 2nd Rhode Island regiments, two Massachusetts regiments, and one regiment from New Hampshire. In addition to the infantry, Massachusetts also sent a regiment of artillery. By the first week of August, the bulk of the American forces had arrived. The Rhode Island militia were some of the last, given that they did not even bother to muster until August 6th. The other big concern for delay was the lack of boats to transport the army to Aquidneck Island. Sullivan did not get authorization to pay for replacement boats until July 20th. Now he was rushing to buy, borrow, or build enough flat-bottom boats to transport his army to the island. By August 8th, though, Sullivan had the fleet that he thought he needed. With his forces ready to go, Sullivan called on Destang to attack Aquidneck Island as a feint to draw off defenders, thus making the main American landing on the other side of the island easier. The French leader, once again offended by Sullivan giving the French forces a secondary role, insisted that both armies land simultaneously. In point of fact, though, although Destang had claimed to have 4,000 French forces ready to fight, he only had about 1,000 regular soldiers and 1,600 Marines. The remainder of his forces were 1,400 sailors who were not even armed with guns. Much of this crew was also too sick for battle. To supplement the French forces, Sullivan sent Lafayette, commanding 300 Continentals and 900 militia, to land alongside the French. Lafayette did not actually arrive until August 7th. Sullivan had planned this attack for August 8th. However, most of his expected militia was still a day or two away, so he ended up delaying the attack until August 10th. Even so, Destang sailed several of his larger ships past Newport on the 8th, forcing the British to burn two more of their ships to avoid risk of capture. Pigott also recalled the remainder of British forces from the northern end of the island, completely abandoning his defenses there. On the morning of August 9th, the day before the big invasion, Sullivan called a council of war to discuss overnight intelligence that the British had abandoned their defenses on the northern part of the island. The council agreed to begin landing right away before the British thought better of their decision to withdraw and possibly return. Sullivan sent a messenger to inform Destang while he deployed the 1st Rhode Island Regiment to land and confirm the intelligence. When the intelligence proved true, 
Sullivan began landing in full force. The French had begun landing soldiers on Connecticut Island that same morning. They had planned to cross over to Aquidneck the following day, which was the original invasion date. About this time, Destang received Sullivan's message that he was already landing and inviting the French to move up their assault on Aquidneck as well. The French landing force, mostly on Connecticut Island by this time, was getting ready to move on Aquidneck by the afternoon. As the French prepared for their landing, Destang received word of a fleet appearing in Narragansett Bay. Fearful of the arrival of a large fleet from England, Destang halted the French landing and began recalling his forces back to the fleet. These ships, it turned out, were not from England, but were part of a fleet that Admiral Howe was cobbling together from ships arriving in New York Harbor. Howe had been waiting for a larger fleet under the command of General John Byron. But by August 6th, Howe had eight ships of the line, seven smaller ships with at least 44 guns each, and a flotilla of smaller ships. Howe figured that even if he could not defeat the French fleet decisively, it was better to go disrupt the assault on Newport than to await the arrival of the rest of the fleet. Now that night, under cover of darkness, Destang took his fleet out of the narrow channels, preparing to sail into open sea, where his larger ships had a much greater advantage against the British. The Admiral hoped he could defeat the British fleet before more reinforcements arrived, then returned to assist with the assault on Aquidneck. Howe's smaller fleet, having succeeded in drawing the French away from Newport, tried to get the best position upwind from the enemy before engaging. The French pursued the British, who managed to keep their distance for the rest of the day. The next morning, the two fleets resumed the chase, but also noticed that the wind had picked up considerably. Over the course of the day, the winds got worse, along with heavy rain and fog. The storm was the remainder of a hurricane making its way up the east coast. By evening, both fleets gave up the idea of a battle and focused on riding out the storm. Over the next two days, General Howe's fleet got scattered, with several ships losing their masts and taking other damage. The French fleet also took serious damage and were also scattered. The Languedoc, Destang's flagship, not only lost several of its masts, but also broke its rudder, leaving the crew unable to steer. On the morning of August 13th, with the storm having passed, a smaller British ship, the Renown, spotted the Languedoc and attacked. Normally, the larger French ship would have had the clear advantage, but after realizing the amount of damage, the Renown moved in to attack. The French managed to keep the enemy at bay for most of the day, and overnight were able to signal other French ships to join her and chase away the British attacker. Two British ships also attacked the damaged Marseille, but the larger French ship of the line managed to get off several broadsides despite damage to her masts and chased off the British attackers. Several other engagements took place as damaged ships on both sides struggled to regroup their fleets. As the fleet struggled at sea, Sullivan's forces dug in on the heights on the northern part of Aquidneck Island. Sullivan had over 10,000 soldiers on the island. The army had to hunker down and endure the same storm that had hit the fleets at sea. Soldiers' tents were blown away and everyone was soaked. Most of the gunpowder was ruined by water, making any battle plan much more difficult. 
By the morning of August 15th, the Army had recovered sufficiently from the storm to begin moving south toward the British lines around Newport. The Americans moved within a mile of the British, then over the next couple of nights moved within a few hundred yards in artillery range of the lines. The British defenses at this point were pretty formidable. The reason that Pigott had given up the northern part of the island without a fight was so that he could concentrate his forces on entrenched heights just north of Newport. The British laid out two lines, with water protecting their flanks and artillery covering the open fields that the Americans would have to cross. The Americans outnumbered the British probably by two to one at this point. Sullivan tried to bait the British into leaving their lines to advance on the Americans, but Pigott remained safely inside his defensive perimeter. For several days, the two sides just traded artillery fire, each side waiting for their navy to return. On August 20th, the British garrison happily caught sight of the British ship Senegal returning to Narragansett Bay. Their hopes were dashed after learning that the Senegal was now a prize ship under French control. Several other ships from the French fleet also soon appeared. They were badly damaged, but the French fleet was returning to Narragansett, not the British. If the French controlled the waters around Newport, the British could only hold out for a short time before inevitably having to surrender. Their only hope was that a British fleet would arrive before they reached the end of their supplies. The Americans appeared to be on the verge of victory. Then the Senegal landed a messenger at Point Judith with a message for General Sullivan. Destang informed Sullivan that the fleet was too badly damaged and that they were leaving right away, headed up to Boston for repairs. Sullivan immediately dispatched Generals Lafayette and Green and Colonel John Langdon to persuade Destang to remain. The fleet's presence, even for just a few days, might be enough to convince the British garrison to surrender. If Destang could deploy his 4,000 French troops into the island, it would either convince Pigott to surrender, or at least divide his defensive lines, making an American attack more likely to prevail. Destang, however, would not be swayed. His fleet was too badly damaged to do any good. His lookouts had identified a few British ships of the line, which they knew were part of Byron's relief fleet. The French did not want to get caught in Narragansett Bay facing a superior force, especially with their ships in such poor condition. On the evening of August 21st, the French fleet set sail for Boston. With the French departure, Sullivan saw the American victory slip away. He had already had to deal with several hundred militia leaving the island when their 15-day enlistments ended. These militia were draftees, not volunteers. Nothing would compel them to remain a minute longer than required. Sullivan faced the imminent departure of all of the 3,000 Rhode Island militia, and the other soldiers who remained were demoralized by the abandonment of the French fleet. Following another council of war, the Americans withdrew back to the northern end of the island, where they occupied the defensive heights there. Upon receiving word from Washington that a fleet of over 100 ships was gathering in Long Island Sound, a likely relief force for Newport, Sullivan began preparations to evacuate the island entirely. He began removing his supplies, heavy equipment, and some of his larger artillery off of Aquidneck Island and back to the mainland. 
By the evening of August 28th, the Continentals had completely evacuated their lines in front of Newport. The British then sent out two divisions under General von Losberg and General Smith to move to the northern part of the island and test the American lines. There, the Americans held stiff resistance on battles at Quaker Hill and Turkey Hill. The back-and-forth fighting cost the Americans about 200 casualties, with the British and Hessian attackers taking about 260. The British, back in control of the waters, brought up several frigates to support the attack. On the night of August 30th, the Americans abandoned their position entirely on the island and rowed back across to Tiverton to take up defenses on the mainland. With that withdrawal, the situation pretty much returned to the status quo. The British held Aquidneck Island while the Americans remained across the water on the mainland. The militia returned to their homes and the standoff remained. The morning after the withdrawal, a British relief fleet of about 70 ships was spotted off Point Judith. The British, once again, took control of the waters around Aquidneck Island. In the days following the French withdrawal, an angry General Sullivan and his officers hurled invectives at the French, the 18th century equivalent of cheese-eating surrender monkeys. General Lafayette nearly got drawn into several duels while trying to defend the honor of his home country. Some feared that the angry words might damage the new French alliance. Sullivan had to put out a public declaration praising the efforts of the French. The Continental Congress praised both the efforts of the Americans and the French. These diplomatic statements papered over the hard feelings. But once again, the Americans had failed to take their intended target. Next week, we're going to head back up to upstate New York, where battles still rage with the Indians and Loyalists at Cobleskill and German Flats. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Also, thanks to Lyceum for his support on Patreon in the Robert Morris Circle. I'd also like to thank my longtime Patreon supporters, Lester Mallett and Eric Wigginton. All of you help support this podcast and help me to cover my expenses. Now, this week we covered quite a bit. The military buildup in Rhode Island, the American invasion, then the naval battle, and the, finally the retreat from Aquidneck Island. 
I actually thought about breaking this up into two episodes in order to get into even more details, but decided in the end to cover it as I did. That also means that I'm trying to keep this after show short because the main show went a little bit long this week. The Rhode Island campaign was a really large campaign, though. It involved more than 10,000 soldiers on the American side alone, as well as all the British and French soldiers. It really was a massive undertaking, comparable to some of the other larger campaigns of the war. Now, the reason it probably gets less attention is that the consequences of the campaign were that it really didn't change anything. The British continued to hold Aquidneck Island, and the Americans kept them pinned down to that island so that the British could not move into the rest of New England. Following the American withdrawal from the island and the arrival of the British relief fleet, the British dispatched a few more raids to the mainland. The British relief fleet also chased the French up to Boston, but found the defenses there were too formidable for an attack. The British Navy anchored outside of Boston, unwilling to enter, but also trying to keep the French trapped there. If you want to read more about the Rhode Island campaign, you'll want to get this week's book recommendation. The Rhode Island Campaign, the First French and American Operation in the Revolutionary War, by Christian M. McBurney. If that name sounds familiar, the author is also the author of my book recommendation from last week about the trial of Charles Lee. Mr. McBurney, I think, is the first author to get back-to-back -back book recommendations on this podcast, and I believe is also the first person to get three recommendations in total when you count his book Kidnapping the Enemy, which I recommended quite some time ago. I guess it's a combination of the fact that I like his work and that he writes about some topics that don't get much attention from other books. Anyway, his book about the Rhode Island campaign gives great coverage to the event. The book is over 400 pages long, but over 150 of those pages are a considerable endnote section. It's a great read on the topic, so if you want to read more, get The Rhode Island Campaign by Christian McBurney. For my online recommendation this week, I'm going to go a bit off topic. There are a number of good online resources about the Rhode Island Campaign that I mentioned in my blog's further reading section for the episode but none of them are particularly comprehensive or ones that I really think need to stand out. So instead this week, I want to mention another podcast that I've been enjoying lately. It's called The History of North America Podcast by Mark Vinette. For the moment, this podcast is actually a prequel to my podcast. Mark starts with some of the ancient history of the continent for a few episodes and then jumps into the Age of Exploration. If the subject matter interests you, you might want to check it out. I found the podcast to be well-produced and a good listen. He's only got about 25 episodes so far, but he's publishing weekly and coming out with new content all the time. So, if that sounds interesting, search for the History of North America podcast on your favorite platform. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? 
How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.